From my home studio, welcome to Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversations. When our kid first came to us and said he needed significant help, we actually literally didn't know where to go because no one talks about, okay, when your kid is sick, they go to this hospital, right? What happens when your kid has a mental health crisis? I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and today I'm speaking with Rabbi Lauren Graybell Herman, and we'll be discussing her Evolve essay, Stigma and Shame, Breaking the Silence on Mental Illness. Rabbi Lauren is, is the rabbi at SAJ, Judaism Stands for All, on uh, Manhattan's Upper West Side, the first Reconstructionist synagogue, and this... Um, essay is is essentially her most recent uh, Rosh Hashanah sermon um, from from 2022 and I definitely recommend checking out the audio or video the emotion with which it's delivered really amplifies the words we'll, we'll have the link in the show notes it's um, she made a choice to tell a very personal story about her own family her own child to address a broader urgent, social, and, and even political problem. Um, first, I, I think we're going to try something a little different today. Usually in the intro, it's just me talking and talking some more. And today, I thought, why, why not hear from Rabbi Jacob Staub, the executive producer of the show and director of the Evolve Project, um, who, who I, I lean on for guidance on, on everything we do on the show. So Jacob, you're here in the intro. Welcome, welcome to this part of the show. Thank you, Shechianu. <laughs> Should we say Shechianu? We can for the for the for the listeners. I've already but... said Shechianu. Oh, okay, all right, all right. Because um, <laughs> you've been on a number of interviews, first time on the intro, and um, I just wondered since since you're responsible for getting this on on the Evolve site and really really highlighting this on the Evolve platform, I'm, I'm wondering what was the impulse for, for reaching out and, and making sure this is part of groundbreaking Jewish conversations, which is, which is the full title of Evolve. Right. Excellent question. Uh, it's actually unusual. Um, uh, I heard that Rabbi Lauren had given a home run of a, of a sermon that everybody was talking about. I didn't even know the topic. And then I asked her about it, and she said, yeah, it's the best response I've ever gotten. Wow. Um, and then, so I asked for it and found out what it was about, right? So I don't want to take the credit for seeking out someone to talk about this topic. She gets the credit for that. Um, I think she does a fantastic job of laying out the agony of, um, mm. of parenting a child with mental challenges um, and in pinpointing and describing the shame and the stigma that gets attached to that, even in small and um, intact communities like many or most Reconstructionist congregations, um, nobody wants to say, I have, or my mm -hmm. child has bipolar disorder. No one wants to say I'm taking um, antidepressants. And 
she covers wonderfully what the problem is, and she has some suggestions about what to do about it. I want to say that beyond all of that, I think there's a question of control of, or, hmm. or of presumed perfection. Like, look at me. I am normal. Look at me. I am better than normal. Um, I don't want you to think there's something wrong with my kid, both because I don't want to stigmatize my kid and because I don't want to you to think I'm responsible for what's happening to my kid because I think I'm responsible and and it, it's it's I'm ashamed of that. It's it's it, it, I think this goes very far. I parented two children who had mood disorders at the oh. Reconstruction Rinalga College. I was completely open about it, and I remember having tremendous support in the community, but I don't think I did much outside of that. And well, when, when, when my, my youngest daughter um, took her own life, my ex-wife and I decided that it was imperative that in all the announcements we tell, we say what happened because we wanted to out the problem. The, the suicide rate among, t- among young people is very, very high and it doesn't help to not say it. Um, but it was very hard to do. We did it on principle, but it wasn't, it wasn't the easiest thing to decide. So uh, enough of me. We want to hear from Rabbi Lauren. I think um, she deserves all the credit in the world for standing up in front of her congregation and saying what she said and what she has done since as, I, as you get into this conversation, how she's step-by-step changing the culture of uh, the SAJ. So... Thanks very much for this. Um, and it sounds like it's almost serendipitous that this came came together because um, you didn't even know the topic when you when you reached out. Um, thank you for uh, for stopping by and sharing your words. And I know it's 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 a number of years later at this point, but but I want to say I'm am so, sorry for for your loss. That that's that that's part of your story. And may may your daughter's memory continue to serve as a blessing to you and all who knew and loved her. Thank you. Um, Okay. Um, Before we start the interview, a reminder, all of the essays on this show are available to read for free on the Evolve website, which is evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. The essays are not required reading for this show, but we really recommend checking them out. Okay, now it's now it's time to introduce our guest, um, the reason we're here. Rabbi Lauren Graybell Herman, as I said, is the rabbi of SAJ, Judaism That Stands for All. She is passionate about bringing voices from the margins into the center of Jewish life and integrating Jewish spirituality and social justice. She was recently named one of the Faith Power 100 New York's most influential leaders by City and State New York. And before coming to New York, Rabbi Lauren was the founding rabbi of Colsetic Synagogue in Philadelphia, which is another Reconstructionist uh, community, and a founding member of Power, Philadelphians to Witness, Empower, and Rebuild. So, okay, Rabbi Lauren Graybell Herman, welcome to the show. It's, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. 
And thank you for choosing to, to speak out and write about mental health and, and call attention to this pivotal issue challenge facing facing our whole society. I, I we're, we're talking just, just a couple days after Pennsylvania's senator, I, I live in Pennsylvania, um, returned to work after six weeks of, of, of being in treatment for depression, just the latest high profile example of, of um, mental health challenges uh, facing, facing our country. So um, going, going, we're, we're, we're just after Passover, but going back to, um, to the high holidays, you, you gave a, a sermon um, about your son Mint and, and, and his challenges, or at least, at least prompted by that. So for those of us who, who haven't heard the, the really powerful sermon um, you gave, can you, can you share some of, um, some of what you talked about with us? Sure. Thanks. First, I want to give out a shout out to, to this Pennsylvania, your Senator, John Fetterman. I think it was extremely brave um, and amazing of him to share publicly and use his platform to raise awareness about mental health and to help um, and the stigma. So I think that that's a really important thing that you're pointing out. Um, we, you know, I, I think, I just want to share that our story, um, there's so many people with stories like my story, and there are so many people um, with stories of their own, you know, personal experiences too, not just, of course, as parents. Um, in the sermon and in general, you know, um, I shared a bit about our journey with Mint. Um, Mint, you know, had struggled throughout earlier periods of, in life with um, some anxiety and some depression. Um, and in about, I want to say, seventh grade, in the beginning of seventh grade, the combination of, you know, that early struggle and other things really uh, went to a, a different level. You know, we had been concerned, we had been, you know, involved, we had been looking into various things, including a neuropsychological exam for ADHD, which was confirmed. But in that seventh grade year, and, and it was really in January of 2020, he came to us and really admitted that he was having active thoughts of suicide. It was not simply, you know, ideation, which of course is scary enough, but really even to the point of planning. And so obviously that was a lightning wow. rod moment in our life, a life-changing moment in our life and, 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 and our world completely changed, right? Everything from then on, myself, my husband, our younger child, and Mint too, um, you know, we had to obviously immediately address this crisis. And, and that began a journey for us that has taken many different forms and shapes and many different um, pieces and, and highs and lows. And I can share all this now because um, Mint is doing amazing and he's gotten the help that he needs. Um, and uh, he's now in school and thriving and doing really, really well. Um, we'll always, you know, be, you know, we'll, we'll have to, you know, continue to like learn to manage depression and anxiety, but is doing extremely well right now. Um, and that really came off of the last year where he spent um, about, a year away from home in intensive treatment programs in California, and then nine months of a, a therapeutic boarding school in Utah. Um, so we are a success story, thank goodness, because we've thank had goodness. the resources and because Mint is determined and wanted to get better and worked hard um, to be able to say that we are 
on the other side, but um, you know, many, many other people also experience similar struggles and, and may have slightly different, you know, uh, I'll stop there. First off, you know, obviously, sorry you've gone through this, but so glad to hear things. Things are really looking up and 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 better than 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 where they were. Um, I can imagine there's, in, in terms of sharing, there there's so many factors to consider, and and maybe even, you know, more complicated that you're the rabbi of a congregation, a, a public figure. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you decided to share when you did, because I, I, I know at some point you would, I don't, can't remember if it was in the sermon or if it was something you said to me off camera or off, off mic that, that, you know, had, had your son been diagnosed with cancer or, or, or something like that, you might've, you might've shared publicly sooner. I wrestled for a long time about whether to talk about mental health and whether to talk about our story personally, our men's story personally on the high holidays. And I really, you know, I spoke with men directly when I was thinking about doing this this past fall. And I said, I'm considering speaking about mental health. And if I do, I'd like to share some, but not a lot of information about what we've been going through. And that's going to mean that you're, you know, people who you don't know are going to know some of these things about you um, without, you know, again, without, without much detail. And men said to me, um, I think you should do it. And I think you should do it because it will help people. So once I knew wow. that he, who, by the way, men is 15, you know, so um, that he, he understood that this was a necessary thing, that this was, that if I had this experience, that it was important to share it, to, to help end the stigma, to help end the shame that um, so many people feel in experiencing mental illness or caring for a person with mental illness. Um, so it was really, you know, a, a, a decision we made together. Um, I, I did contemplate doing a sermon about mental health and not speaking personally, but it felt very inauthentic. And it also felt like important that I share my story and as, an, as an example of what does it mean to come out of a closet, really, to be honest, really to come out of the secret, to come out of the shadows and, and to share your truth because so few people feel safe and able to do that in so many different circumstances of their life, whether it be synagogue or schools or, you know, just in general with family, even with extended family. Um, so it felt like a moment that could change people's hearts and minds, open them up, and also really begin a dialogue about what would it mean to be a Jewish community that sees mental illness as the same in the same ways that we see physical illness. What would that look like? What would that mean? What would what can we envision for our world in general, and specifically in our container of a community? So um, that's really why I decided to, to talk about this. Wow. Um, that must've been a proud moment for you because it seems like a very grown up thing to, to think and articulate my struggle, my story could, could help other people and other people really need help. That, that seems like, uh, I don't know, something, something to be really proud of there. Um, 100% um, Mint is the most inspiring person that I know. He 
all along this journey um, did everything that he needed to do to make it work. There are so many other people that, you know, don't want to do the hard work, right, of figuring out kind of where their triggers are and how they can get better. And um, he has just uh, 100% demonstrated an incredible amount of resiliency and also wisdom, incredible wisdom um, through this process. And I think is a true inspiration for me and my husband. So you gave this sermon, you you shared a vulnerable part of yourself and your family. Um, you you raised you know a really pressing issue at I think it was Rosh Hashanah um, sermon. What what happened? What 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 was the response like from from your community? That's a great question. Um, I want to start by saying that the sermon was about ending the stigma of mental right. illness and, and really struggling, really making sure that people are challenged to think about how we talk about, treat, and respond to mental illness. And to and I'd love to talk, you know, we'll, we'll get there about more about, um, about the stigmas that are still out there and still present in people's lives. Um, but I want to say I used my story as a way of, of telling a larger tale. So it really wasn't a sermon about me. In fact, Mint's part of the sermon was quite small. It's probably one, one tenth, right, of the sermon uh, or less. People you remember know, stories really, though. So, so it seems course, larger than, it, course, than that, but of course, yes. Of course, and I wanted, and I knew that, and I knew that it was, whatever I said was going to be, if I had not told my story, it would not have resonated in the way that it did, right? So I absolutely wanted to tell that story. I'm just saying that the story is a vehicle because of my experience to to really open up the conversation. And as I said in the sermon, breaking the silence is what cuts off shame and cuts off stigma. And we need to have conversations about mental illness. So that was the goal. So I would say in terms of my congregation and the reaction to the sermon, there was twofold. There was one reaction, which was a caretaking reaction towards me. Oh, we didn't know. We wish we could have been there for you. We love you, you know, which was so sweet and generous and lovely. But I kept saying to them, this isn't only about me, right? Mm. This is about the millions of people who are impacted by mental health and mental illness every day within our congregation who might not even yet be known, right? And beyond, obviously not millions in our congregation, but millions in the world, right? And those in our congregation. So I had to sort of help people understand that the point, the larger, some people understand the larger point. And on the other the other um, token, people just started telling me stories. And it was amazing because, you know, I have a great relationship with my congregants and they tell me things all the time. And I'm blessed that people come to me and share stories with me and share struggles with me. And that's a beautiful thing as being a rabbi, being able to witness and be present in people's lives. But there were a lot of stories I had not heard before. You know, a congregant I've known for, you know, a long time. You know, I've been at SAJ eight years. Let's say I've known them the whole time. Um, and they, I found out that their brother was, had schizophrenia, right? I had never, no idea. Another person who I found out whose parent had committed suicide and they never told anyone before outside of their immediate family. You know, people just started to, to share stories. And it was amazing to see how healing it was for people and how much they needed the permission to be able to do that and the safety and the, the safety that was generated in that sermon to be able to have people come forward and tell me that story. 
I also talked to a congregant who I I had told them I was going to give the sermon ahead of time because they themselves are struggling with um, significant issues or um, mental health issues, long-term mental health issues that have not unfortunately found good treatments. And, um, and, and, and that person told me that they had never felt so seen really like in a congregation or in a synagogue setting or really anywhere in some ways, because it's something that they're embarrassed about. It's something that they feel like they can't necessarily share broadly. Um, so it was pretty amazing to, to feel the outpouring and to hear it and to let people understand and know that they um, had someone safe to talk to. If you're moved by this episode, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating or leave a review in Apple Podcasts. These ratings really help other people find out about the show. We're, we're on a mission to get 100 five-star ratings because we know we've got a lot more than a 100 folks out there who listen to us regularly and, and, and love our stuff. Please help us out if you have a moment. We really appreciate it. Okay, now back to Lauren Graybell Herman. I want to return to, to your community and others and, and, and how and how things might might change. But I, I did I did want to spend time talking about the, the stigma and destigmatizing mental health because you point out that that really was the point the point of your sermon. It was it was it was a, a personal story to get into a larger point and rather than lose the larger point, I, I really wanna I, I wanna focus on it because it's so important and and um and I do think it's important, and it means something when rabbis specifically speak out about something that's that's not talked about um, as much as it should. Um, I mean, it has seemed maybe since the pandemic that that we've you know culturally there's been there's been a lot more focus on mental health. We've seen more high profile folks um, talking publicly about about their mental health struggles. I mean. Anyone who talks to me for a little bit of time knows I'm I'm a I'm an avid tennis fan. There was a lot um, of attention right. around Naomi Osaka when she chose yeah. to not compete and step away from the sport because of, of 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 anxiety and mental health issues. So it seems easy to say we're doing better. And then I looked at it and I saw as recently as 2020, um, suicide was the second leading cause of death for youth age. 10 to 14, third for 15 to 24. So obviously still just, just, you know, a huge, really life-threatening thing yes. out there. So, so. And the statistic I know, I'm actually curious, your statistic where you got it was actually, that's the second leading cause of death from people 10 to 34. So I would, we have to compare statistics, right. but either way, it's very significant. Yeah. Um. So. I guess the question is, um, wh why do you think this stigma persists, and how do you think we're doing as a society in in getting getting past it? Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, this is really what I'm passionate about, and I and I speak from personal experience, and I'm I'm happy to also share some of that for myself. Like, you know, for me, it was a little different because as a parent, you're also navigating, you know, protecting your child sure. and not. Like, well, even if I had wanted to blast it out, right, to the world, it's not my decision, right? It's also, you know, my my teen's decision as to who gets to know and how many people get to know and what they get to know. So that's really important. Um, but, you know, it was, 
I, I, I absolutely felt um, the shame, the isolation, the loneliness that so many other people felt and feel. And I did feel like there there wasn't a sense of of safety of being able to say to people or understanding, being able to say to people, um, you know, hey, you know, this is what we're going through. Like I had a lot of friends that I felt were, you know, sympathetic, but dismissive, like not really fully understanding it. And not, whereas you, again, you can have these comparisons of if your child had cancer, if your child had, you know, diabetes, if you had a, a life-threatening illness, which mental illness is, and especially in a crisis, is a life-threatening illness, you would expect, you know, checking in. You would expect, you know, what can I do for you? And it just didn't resonate in the same level for people. And, and, and so the whys, I'm not sure, but I, I do want to say, I, I think you're right that things have are shifting, but I think that it's really important to not overestimate how much they're shifting and to not um, just say, just because therapy is more normalized. And again, within certain spheres, right? Not every sphere outside of the Jewish community is going to normalize, right? Therapy, normalize anxiety. Thank goodness our Jewish community is more open to those things. Um, But there is still a ton, a ton, a ton of stigma. And I think even more, there's a ton of shame, which I see as stigma turned inside. So in terms of stigma, you know, I want to talk about it in a couple different ways. First, it's important to just be obvious that discriminate or just to be clear that discrimination still exists, that there are people and employers that are, if you are honest about having um, it just, and honestly, this can, this can also go beyond um, mental health, but even just in terms of neurodiversity, right? If you share that you are on the autism spectrum, if you share that you are, you know, um, whatever it is, right? If you share that you have depression, that there could be real world consequences for those things. There's discrimination in housing, um, 100%. There are still persisting negative stereotypes. Okay, fine. Maybe anxiety and depression are more normalized, but think about the associations that go with bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, those folks are much more likely to be um, stereotyped as dangerous or violent or scary, whereas in fact, statistics show that people with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder are more likely to be victims of violence than perpetrators of violence. Right. It has come up in the gun, in the gun, in the gun violence debate somewhat. Exactly. Exactly. And of course, people who are defending the right to have guns are going to pin that on, you know, mental health, if that's available to them, anything they can, right? Well, they will pin that on. We can put that on for another episode. Um, But there is, you know, there is also still a ton of um, denial. There's a statistic from the National Institute of Mental Health that says it takes an average person suffering with mental illness more than 10 years to ask for help. So 10 years between the time they have a symptom and then between the time they actually pursue, you know, pursue help. Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just struck by, by what you, you said about, about shame and it's, and it, and it's kind of, it's kind of heartbreaking in a way because, because mental, mental, mental health struggles, mental, mental illness can really feel agonizing both to the person experiencing it and, and those who love them. And, and then to feel shame on top of that, it just to, you know, and then, 
to face discrimination on top of that just just feels feels like yeah. too much for people yeah. to to have to bear or or should bear. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the piece of of the of the of shame and again, I do I hope and think this is improving, but there still is because of the way our society treats mental illness as if it's quite different than physical illness. First of all, just on a very tactile you know, basic level or tactless level, you know, therapists are extremely hard to come by. They often don't take insurance. Psychiatrists almost really never take insurance or rarely take insurance. The access to care, the where care exists, like when our kid first came to us and said he needed significant help, we actually literally didn't know where to go, like a physical place. <laughs> we didn't know where to go because no one talks about Okay, when your kid is sick, they go to this hospital, right? When your kid has this disease, they go to this hospital. But what happens when your kid has a mental health crisis? I don't know where to go. Like, I literally did not know where to turn to. And then when it came time for men to find uh, programs and schools, I didn't find them through my doctor or referral from other parents. I found, well, I found them through a listserv of other parents who have gone through or are going through the exact same thing we did. Because of the lack of resources, we had to form our own sort of sub-community where we looked out for each other and, and help each other find those resources. So just the lack of information is really significant. Um, but I wanted to tell a story that has to do with shame that's not, not just my story, is that um, I have a congregant who is struggling with depression and, you know, really, really having a hard time. And um, she really refused to, I kept saying, you know, would you consider seeing a psychiatrist? Would you consider seeing um, someone to, to, to take medication? Because it really seems like this is getting, getting uh, a little bit you know, a little bit more than you can bear. And, you know, immediately the walls went up, you know, it's, it's the, even just that sense of like, I'm someone that needs to take medication. Now, if someone had said to this person, you have, you know, um, high blood pressure, they would most likely skip drop and hump right to, you know, right, go right to find the medication that would alleviate that symptom. So because it's so sort of, everyone's different. And because the medical system, the mental health system is so different and separate from our physical health and they're not integrated at all, there is so much of a gap and, and so much um, of that internal shame that can happen. Yeah. It's funny. I'm still thinking about what you said about insurance. I mean, as a, as a parent and as, and as a person for myself, I have looked into both of these and, and, um, Psychiatrists and 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 therapists are are, I think, according to the Affordable Care Act, are supposed to take insurance. But yeah, right. good luck finding one that that does. It 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 really well, becomes a choice. Or, yeah, exactly. Of either not getting care or okay, let's let's how much of my income is 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 going towards this? Um, oh wow. Um, Actually, can I? I'd love to address that for a second. I mean, sure. I this is an issue I, I wasn't able to really put into the sermon, but I, I had kind of a couple nods to it. Um, the amount of inequity, you know, in this embroiled in that system based on these realities, based on lack of care, lack of access to care, lack of providers, especially right now, right? Like there's so much demand after the pandemic, as you mentioned, for providers, especially for adolescents. Um, that results in inequality that is, I mean, I want to put it really bluntly and say that if 
someone in the situation that our family went to, uh, went through, who did not have financial resources or even just you know sort of other potential resources, I could see that difference between someone recovering, going to college, going on to have a productive life versus someone ending up homeless, someone ending up in jail. I mean, that's the starkness of the of the difference. It is a truly mental health access is a social justice issue as well because of that lack of affordability, mm. lack of access. Many of the programs that we did, we had to borrow money in order to do. Um, we had to ask family members for support. You know, these are things that we could do because we had those resources and so many people might not have that option. Wow. I guess I'm wondering, maybe it's a two-part question. I'm, I'm wondering what's the the best piece of advice you got during this process and and maybe what's what's the first bit of advice you would give to a parent who was in maybe a similar situation as, as you were a couple of years ago? I'll answer that question, Brian, by sort of answering it a little bit with my rabbi hat on, maybe more than my parent hat. And to say that I think that, you know, just as I think this is a critical part of being Jewish, um, I think it's a really critical part of being a caretaker for someone with mental illness is to just not give up, um, to refuse to believe that there can't be a, you know, a, a cure or a healing or um, a future that is better than now. It's very easy when you're in the depths of despair to feel like nothing is go- like in any situation, right, to feel like you're not going to get through it. It might not get better. What if this lasts forever? What if, God forbid, the worst case scenario happens? But I think as as parents and as humans, it's really important for us to be committed to hope, even when things feel really difficult, um, and to feel, you know, not not to stay to hope in a uh, in a as a panacea, but just to recognize that like things things can change, right? And to live and be and feel the experience. But to change. And then I would also say as a parent, I learned a ton about parenting um, through this process. I was in some of the programs that we did. I was able to take some parenting classes. I thought I was a really excellent parent. I still think I was a really excellent parent before the situation. I have learned skills that have made me a better parent through this process. So I think it's also a really important opportunity to sort of work on yourself and um, to make sure you're healing yourself alongside the loved ones who are also figuring out their journey. Rabbi hat. And by the way, we love rabbis on this, on this program. We have, <laughs> we have a fair number of them. Um, were there pra- you know, practices or, or rituals in Judaism that you look to, to find nourishment during, during what was the, you know, and self-care during, during uh, extreme parenting time? That's a really good question. I really appreciate that question. I think that for me, um, prayer and meditation, um, mindfulness, you know, have been really important grounding for, for myself throughout this process, um, being able to have the experience of, you know, leading services every week, but being able to have moments that were for myself, just times I could cry or times I could, you know, feel what I was feeling or, or allow myself to just take breaths. That was really powerful. Um, and I think, you know, as always having Shabbat be an anchor in our lives that like, it doesn't go away no matter what's going on, maybe a little bit more, 
low key in certain times and others, but there's still a sense of, okay, acknowledging the difference in time and sacredness in time that feels like very grounding when things around you are out of control or feel out of control. Having grown up also with a, with a, with a parent, um, I believe it's your father who had significant mental health challenges. I'm wondering if if you've seen that that stigma change over time. It, it, it's something that's that's really been present for you through you know throughout much of your life. Okay, so I haven't spoken that much really at, at all um, in front of my congregation, at least, although some interpersonally about my father. But I do come from a family where there's a history of mental health. Uh, struggles. And my, um, probably the most, you know, many, many people in my family, extended family, but the most profound experience of that was my father. Um, My father, and I was quite young when this manifested. So some of it I know mostly through stories and, but I do have some memories. So my father, um, his mother had um, actually um, completed suicide when, uh, before any of us were born. And my father struggled on and off and throughout his life. He would be wildly productive and completely fine and normal for many years. And then he would have bouts of extraordinary depression um, and uh, like to the point where he couldn't work and he couldn't leave the house and, you know, left my mom um, with three children, like really not sure what to do um, and how to manage it. And at the time, again, there was even more stigma than there is today. So it was very hard to access care and to know what to do. Um, and he went through so many different treatments. And again, I, I, I appreciate my mother for everything she did for him because she could have given up so many times along the way. It was very, very difficult. Uh, there were many difficult periods and he went through a ton of experiences of being misdiagnosed. Um, he actually was hospitalized for about a month when I was about 10. And I have a very clear memory of visiting him in the hospital and it was very strange. Um, And then he came home and um, finally my mother found after probably three or four, uh, five, six different attempts, found a doctor, a psychiatrist who diagnosed him properly and diagnosed him with an unusual form of bipolar disorder where he would not just have an ongoing episodic high and low, but a longer period in between and uh, like years in between. But that was what was going on and no one could see that before. So he was um, finally given the right medication and he lived a productive rest of his life. And in fact, you know, he and I were extraordinarily, extraordinarily close. Um, he faced a lot of specific discrimination, like once he came out as with his mental health issues, once he had the long, the longest breakdown that eventually led to his better treatment, um, he was demoted. He had uh, less salary. He had um, less responsibilities. He was in a different office. So there were real ramifications for him for uh, acknowledging and uh, admitting and, and sharing his dis- diagnosis, which he had to do at the time because he took so much time off. Um, but he did. He did get on the right medication. And because of that, I really grew up never feeling like medication was a problem or stigma or mental health because I saw that it literally saved my father's life. Um, I should also mention that his mother's suicide was covered up by some parts of our family who um, still to this day don't speak about it as a suicide, even though it was. So, yeah, I mean, again, things have changed. Um, At the same time, I think that's still so much 
um, of the shame and the, you know, continues on. And your son identifies as, as both neuro or is neurodiverse and, and trans. And, you know, despite all the education that's happened in, in both those areas, I think there's still from, from what I understand, um, additional men, you know, mental health challenges there that, that we need to be aware of. I mean, I mean, from what I understand, I mean, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but, but trans you have them. So maybe my <laughs> guest has, them and can provide it, but trans kids who are, who are not held, who are not accepted. I mean, the, the risks of, 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 of suicide and self-harm are, are astronomically higher. And then you have an example of children who are fully accepted and fully loved and embraced. And there's not a, you know, absolutely no difference, right, with like in our family who still experience suicidal ideation in part because right. of gender dysphoria. Not the only part, but in part because of gender dysphoria and feeling like you're not in the right body, feeling like people aren't going to accept you, feeling you can't manifest your true self, even in contexts where you are fully embraced and accepted and loved. Um, and imagine all the more so, like we like to say in, in Judaism, all the more so in families where that's not possible, in communities where it's not okay to be gay, or in communities where it's not okay to be um, transgender. So there is absolutely a correlation between risks of suicide, depression, anxiety, and people, I'll start with the gender piece and the neurodiversity as well. But, you know, that is a huge, huge issue that needs to be addressed. And I want to say very clearly, we are in the middle of an authoritarian assault on our country manifesting in the assault on transgender rights right now. And this is not just unethical and immoral. This is literally putting lives at risk because people will complete suicide more frequently if they are denied affirming care. That is a bottom line issue. So this is not just an issue of what's right and wrong. This is an issue of life or death for so many people. And it's really important that we all have our alarm bells up right now. And we all, whether or not you know a trans person, whether or not you love a trans person or a non-binary person, like this has to really rise to a level of a crisis in our society because it is a, literally a life and death issue. Um, you mentioned some of the statistics. So... Um, I have statistics from, um, like, I, I've seen statistics from the Trevor Pro, uh, Trevor Project um, that talk about in 2020. So think about that. Even before this assault, transgender and non-binary youth were two to two and a half times more likely to experience depressive symptoms, consider suicide, or attempt suicide compared to their cisgender LGBT LGBTQ, so not T peers. So two and a half times more likely to experience these symptoms and have a risk of suicidality. And then if you look, and that's in 2020, I have to think that right now in 2023, with the every single day assaults on transgender rights, that that is going up. Also, um, it's important to note, and we are as a Jewish community, a diverse Jewish community, an intersectional Jewish community with Jews of color in our midst, LGBTQ Jews in our midst, um, that the statistics for people of color are higher for risks of suicidality. And then if you combine those two, LGBTQ and people of color together, LGBTQ kids and trans and non-binary folks, they have 59% of Black, transgender, and non-binary youth, according to a 2022 study, 
59% seriously considering suicide. More than one in four, 26% attempting suicide in the last year. So if you think about, you know, mental health, absolutely it is an intersectional issue. It's not just a generic, everyone is affected the same way. It is affected by your, you know, background, by, you know, the many other like oppressions you're facing, by potentially, you know, your, um, the cult, the community's access and, uh, you know, culture around, around mental health as well. And all these external uh, pressures that are going on around them. Um, so it's really, really important that we understand that, you know, this affects different communities within our Jewish community and within our broader community differently, and that we seek to remedy those oppressions that are uh, contributing to the to the um, larger story. So if we start with... Can, can I add one more thing about that? Oh, I just want to add, um, I just want to take a, special, a note to mention in particular that Missouri, um, and I, we're again, this might air a little bit later, but re- in recent weeks, you know, just officially banned gender-affirming care for teens and, you know, for anyone under 18, but they also put it in a significant amount of um, barriers to adults seeking gender-affirming care. And one of those barriers for adults seeking gender-affirming care is that they cannot be diagnosed with depression, they cannot have autism, and they cannot be diagnosed with anxiety. If you think about trans and non-binary people seeking care, what is the source of their depression? What is the source of, you know, why they might be diagnosed with those issues? And so the complete and utter irony, which I'm sure is on purpose, you know, planned of, of saying that those who are depressed can't get gender affirming care when the source of their depression is not getting gender affirming care. Right. And um, gender affirming care is 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 is, is treated as a wide spectrum of treatments that right. would alleviate gender dysphoria. Anything from um suppression of um you know periods anything from any hormone hormone therapy you know it doesn't just have to be surgery but surgery might also be part of that that um it's a spectrum of care right. and it can I, and again you know that spectrum is is wide um and i and i just wanted to say that there's other statistics that show that gender affirming care reduces suicidality in lgbt or t you know trans and non-binary youth or by 73%. So this is really, really critical. And there's decades, I mean, this isn't something that this area of practice wasn't, didn't just come about five years ago. There's decades of, absolutely decades of practice. You know, the, the first, the first gender affirming clinics open, open in the sixties. So there's a lot of, uh, and it's important to also note and, 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 and I think hopefully our listeners know this, but it's important to note that many of the treatments that are used for gender affirming care are also used for cisgender people, depending on a situation. If someone is, you know, needing some extra hormones, extra testosterone, just based on if they're cisgender, but they just need that based on their numbers or based on their body, um, it's the same care. So there's nothing so unique about that particular um, treatment that's being given. So, Given all that has to be fixed in in the world, if we if we start with where we maybe have the most control, which is our, you know, progressive Jewish communities, um, what's the work that needs to be done, or what's the first work that needs to be done? Because it sounds like there there's there's still a lot. 
Absolutely. I mean, there are so, again, just like with so many issues, there's so many pieces because, you know, with if we look at racism and trans attacks on trans people, like those things impact suicidality, those things impact all those pieces, but bringing it down to our community is not only just making our community safe and open for all those people with all those identities, that's number one, right? So not just about mental health, but just in general, making sure that our communities are safe and inclusive. But I would also say, I think it's really important, and I spoke about this in the sermon, that we need to normalize mental illness, treat mental illness like any other part of life, because it is. Treat mental health like any other part of life, because it is. And that's what I mentioned in the sermon. So that really means normalizing, making it normal to talk about, normal to celebrate, normal to bring into our sphere. Um, At SAJ, um, we are beginning uh, this process of creating a mental health team that is going to have the mission of educating our community providing resources for our community, and just generally enabling conversations to be had so that we end the stigma. And that can be, you know, synagogues can do any kind of version of that, right? They could have a once a year program. They could make sure that among their many programming offerings, anything from social justice to reconstructionism to intellectualism, whatever it is, that those programs, that some of that programming is centered around mental health issues. And in particular, that we're really reaching out to parents of teens and tweens and teens and tweens themselves to help them identify how they can be the best allies to their peers and to, you know, for the community to support those folks and give them resources. I think it's important that suicide is talked about. Even just literally using the word suicide is powerful. It's like breaking down something we don't talk about. So normalizing that. We, one thing we did on the high holidays and we need to concretize on our website is like people knowing what numbers to call, where to go. Um, because again, as I mentioned, even for myself, we didn't know where to go um, and, and having and sharing those resources. So I think clergy training, normalizing, also thinking about things like eating disorders, normalizing, talking about eating disorders are so common and they're a manifestation of, of these issues. Um, having AA groups, NA groups, if you can meet in your congregations is a signal that this is, um, you know, welcome, not just for our members, but for the whole community, but hopefully also for our members. We had talked about, um, some of our members talked about having a, a meetup of those who are in recovery for our, during our synagogue retreat, which I think is a fantastic idea. It's a great way to start building community around these issues and also letting people have their privacy to self-disclose and choose if they want to be part of that. Um, I'd love to see a mental health awareness Shabbat along the same lines as a highest Shabbat or one of the Shabbat Shabbatot that so many of our congregations embrace as we should. Why not have something that specifically focuses on mental health and gives people the signal that it's okay to talk about these issues in our congregations? And the example I gave in the sermon is just creating a culture through these things that enables people to just feel like it's normal. And I gave the example of what would happen on a Saturday morning um, at our congregation every single week. Our, our final aliyah is for anyone who wants to celebrate anything, a birthday, an anniversary, a work thing, something else, you know, very varied. Many people come up for different things. And what if someone just was like, hey, it's the 10th anniversary of my sobriety. I want to have an aliyah. And that was normal. No one bat an eye. They felt like they could. It was honored just as much as 
an anniversary of or a wedding, right? Um, that 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 felt like permissible and able to do. So that's my my vision. I think synagogues have a very unique role to play in this moment because we are this intimate locus of you know relationships and safety and connection and commitment. Um, so I think synagogues can really lead the way. There 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 must be a, a Talmudic teaching, or if there's not, there should be something like treat treat everyone you meet a, as if they might be going through the worst day of their life. Something something like that. I'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll see. Um, I, I, there's so much. There, there there's certainly been a lot of focus on 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 making congregants more more welcoming spaces to people of all all abilities all, all, all backgrounds um you know a lot of this is, is is visible if um somebody is facing a physically handicapped you you might know what if if you've done the work what needs to be needs to be done to make the building the service more accessible to that person but how you know so much of 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 mental suffering just it, it happens in places that people can't see anxiety, things like that. How, how, you know, how can synagogues be more, more welcoming or, or make, make participating easier when, when, when so much of, 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 of this happens on, on a realm we can't see. It's a really, really important question. And, Thank goodness we're doing more with those with disabilities we can see, although I would challenge us that there's even more. And I know in my, my congregation, there's even more we can be doing. Um, and invisible disabilities are are, are, are are just as present, but we don't see them, like as you said so beautifully. So that could be not only mental illness or mental health issues, that could also be someone with, you know, ADHD or autism or, you know, anything that's Absolutely. not seen. So it's really important, number one, that we surface that reality, that there are these invisible um, disabilities and uh, or conditions, however you want to call them, depending on what they are, um, and that we are attentive in thinking about proactively about how to make our congregations in space. I'm a big believer in um, the power of words. I mean, this is this is, this is a good rabbi rabbi thing to believe, right? In Breshit, how does the world begin? In the beginning of uh, creation, in, in our Torah, how does in Genesis, what do we say? You know, Breshit bara Elohim, God created the world, and then everything is through speech. You know, uh, there should be light. God said there should be light, and there's light, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That there is power in giving speech. Speech is a creative act. And in my experience, speech is not only a creative act, but it is a transformative act. It brings the visibility to the invisible. It brings the light Onto what might be literally, you know, just not seen and in the darkness, um, just by naming it. I saw that, you know, I, I see that all the time. It's not just with mental health issues, but you know, naming people's struggles, right? Naming people's differences. Those things, if they're not articulated out loud, people are not going to be aware of them, right? But then you you bring them in, and it, it, that in of itself can be transformative and extremely impactful. Um, 
so I think that it's really the, you know, in, in that way, the, my, my kind of, um, advice or I don't know if it's advice, my, my, my thinking on this would be that, that just the more we speak about make seen, um, make visible these issues, the more healing we will do. I also wanted to say, you said, you said, I wish there was a, there must be a Talmudic way to say, you got you know, one as they are on their worst day. You know, I would say that, that we have a phrase called Dan, uh, Dan which is give a person the benefit of the doubt. And that kind of approximates that sense of like, if someone is rude, instead of reacting, we say, okay, maybe they're having a bad day, right? Like that's, that's the way that we should embrace and see as well. Um, and I also told this Talmudic story in the sermon at the end of the sermon about two rabbis um, and how um, the the rabbis were able to uh, a, a visit actually like a bikor cholim a visiting of the sick and how one rabbi was able to lift the other and um, and the Talmud says this beautiful phrase that uh, why did this rabbi have to physically lift the other one and he's the Talmud says because a person cannot get out of prison alone. So we need each other. We need to pull each other up. Wow. I've been been dipping my toes into some of the mindfulness meditation stuff you talked about. And really, it's not easy, but really trying to think, oh, maybe this this person that just cut me off or cut me in line, maybe they were really in a hurry. Maybe they were in a terrible <laughs> day. Maybe to, not, not to dwell on that, because I because I think you know fury is my is my natural um, natural <laughs> response. Um, so much we could talk about, um, and I know we're we're running low on time. You had written and said that this this struck me as really powerful. Do not do not question someone's character, strength, or past decisions when you find out someone is struggling. Do not question someone's parenting because you find out their child is is, is suffering. Um, so what are what are what are better words? What 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 would you like? What would you have liked to heard or or what? What should parents or others yeah. hear, you know, rather than, you know, as opposed to the negative? Yeah. I think it goes back to the normalization that we wouldn't do those things for someone who had a physical illness. So if we can transform the way we think about mental health and mental illness, it will naturally happen. We will naturally be able to give empathy. We'll naturally be able to sort of recognize, okay, this person's in a hard place. And I also want to say that we, as humans, we're not always good with what's uncomfortable, right? Like that is a um, issue with grief, right? Like if someone's grieving, we don't always know how to respond to them. People say the wrong thing. They try to maybe make them feel better instead of actually just listening. So I cannot say anything more strongly than um, and recommend anything more strongly than just listening and empathy and making space because that is what transforms and that is what really enables people to feel like someone is present for them and to give them a sense of healing and wholeness. So just to honor their experience. Well, thank you so much for your words and, and wisdom and, and really trying to break using your, your platforms to break the stigma um, and, 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 and really appreciate the conversation and, and hope and, and, and know that things will, will continue to go, to go well um, in, in, in your own life and family. And, and, and 
and we hope to well hopefully there's not there's not a a a reason to have this this conversation again but but surely it's not going to disappear tomorrow so so to be to be continued i hope well absolutely i mean this conversation thank god you know we're all doing well in our family but there are so many people out there struggling and as long as there is shame and stigma i am here to share my story and to help um, educate because we this is this is it's not a small thing of what needs to be fixed and transformed i talked about this in my sermon as an act of teshuva an act of repair and return um this is it's really um this is if we can succeed and it's going to take time and it's not just you know it's going to be a long journey in transforming our culture and transforming our medical system so that there is access and there is um, knowledge of the care, then we will save lives. So what do you think of today's episode? Did it prompt further conversation, questions? I want to hear from you. Evolve is about meaningful conversations, and you're part of that. Send me your comments, questions, feedback. You can reach me, and this is my honest-to-goodness real email address, bschwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. We'll be back soon with an all-new episode. Evolve, Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Walks. Our theme song, Ilufinu, is by Rabbi Miriam Margols. This show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and I'll see you next time.